0: If you have your Bibles, I'd like for you to uh, turn to Exodus uh, chapter nineteen. Exodus chapter nineteen. We uh, we're starting a uh, a new series, and it's going to be for three weeks, and it's entitled "A Life That Matters." Now, whenever you think about a statement that says a life that matters, you can look at it from two perspectives. The first perspective is that, well, every life matters because every life is valuable. And the reason every life is valuable is because the Bible says that we are created in the image of God. And so as image bearers of the one true God, we have a life that is of value. But the second perspective is not just that your life itself is valuable, but what do you do with that life? And so when you make the statement, a life that matters, it talks about a life that is lived in such a way that it has significance, it has importance, both here on earth and into eternity. And so for the next three weeks, we want to take a look at that and to understand and get our hands around what does it mean to have a life that matters. It matters here on earth, but it also is going to matter in eternity. So to start us out, I'm going to lay a foundation, and then we're going to get to Exodus uh, chapter 19. First of all, we need to realize that what God has created us to display his glory through us. And as we are created in the image of God, we are to live our lives in such a way that the glory of God is both known and praised. So everything we need to do is to be for the glory of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31 says this. He says, So whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So everything that we do, we're to keep in mind the glory of God. But then Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, on the Sermon on the Mount, early parts, Jesus says this, In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works. You let your light shine be others so they may see your good works and say, what a great person you are. No. It says, and do what? And give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So the whole purpose for us to be doing good works is, is not for us to get the pats on the back, but it is so that we give glory and honor to God who is in heaven. Now this would be a definition of a life that matters. Keeping that in mind about giving glory to God and letting His glory be known and praised, a life that matters aligns your heart and actions with the goal of making God's glory be known and praised. We'll leave it up there for just a moment because the next three weeks we're going to be looking at this. A life that matters aligns your heart and actions with the goal of making God's glory be known and praised. So everything that I begin to think about in my heart and the actions that I take has got a goal of saying, how can I make God's glory be known and not just known, but may it be praised. So I am trying to not give God a black eye. I'm trying to put God out there for who he is and for people to see his glory and for him to be praised. So keeping that in mind, I'm going to jump you over to the New Testament to a minute in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And we're going to take a, just a brief glimpse of a uh, judgment seat of Christ. That after Jesus Christ comes back, and then when there's this judgment seat of Christ, and we are as believers in Christ, as believers in Christ, we will be evaluated. Our lives will be evaluated. Now, this is not about salvation or not salvation. These are for those who've made the decision to receive Christ as Savior. And then at the end of time, we will seat at the, sit at the judgment seat of Christ. And there will come a time of evaluation. Chapter 3, verse 11. He says, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. That is our foundation, Jesus Christ. We're sinners. We are separated from God. And because of that separation, we need someone to pay the penalty for our sins. Either we'll take it on ourselves, and then we'll stand before a holy God, and he says, "Whatever all these little things you've done that you think are righteous, they are not enough, you will be spending eternity separated from me. Or do you accept the payment for those sins? which is when God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for those sins. And then three days later, raised from the dead, conquering sin and death. And you come to the point where you repent of your sins and say, I want to accept that gift. If that happens, you have laid the foundation. And you saw five people that were baptized. They've laid the foundation. Their foundation is Jesus Christ. Now for the rest of their lives, they will build upon that foundation. And what will that look like? You and I, with earthly eyes, will see it one way. When we get to heaven, God's going to look at it another way. And not only will God look at it another way, but you will also get to see it from an eternal perspective. And this is what he says in verse 12. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. And if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So he's he's painting you a picture here, and he's saying what will happen is that they're going to take all the things that you did, and and everything that you and I have done, we're going to build our own little edifice over here. But on there, God is going to judge our motives, our desires, our reasons for why we did all these things. And then once they build it, then they're going to take a match and they're going to light a match to it and they're going to throw a match on it. Now, if it's made out of gold, silver, and precious stones, it's not going to burn. It's still going to be standing. But if it's wood, hay, stubble, it could look like a Texas A&M bonfire. And and you could build that thing up and it could look pretty impressive. In fact, you could step back and call the, uh, Peter over here and say, hey, Pete, hey, look at this. Mine looks pretty good. But see, Peter knows the drill. He's going to go, mm, I don't know, Danny. I think you better watch for the match. And then all of a sudden, someone lights a match to it and it just goes up in flames. And then you look and say, what you got now? You see, your life, all these things that you did because of either the motives or the reasons that you did it, there was never any desire to give God glory. And he was one that was not praised. It was more about me. And all of a sudden, it doesn't last through eternity. Where it says that those who have a life that is built to give glory to God and that God may be praised, he says, it will last into eternity and there will be rewards with that. And so keeping that in mind, a life that matters is mat- something that matters both here but also in eternity. Now, at our church, at Shades Mountain, our desire is that every member live a life that matters. And we have a um, uh, a mission statement that tries to encapsulate this. And our mission statement is this, and that is sending transformed people to influence their world for Christ. Just nine words. Sending transformed people to influence their world for Christ. This is a life that matters. Sending means we're always going we're always going to give the word of Christ. Transform, that means there's a metamorphosis that takes place in our life, that we grow daily with Christ and we're trying to be more Christ-like. And so as a transformed people, we influence our world for Christ. Influence, that means to have an effect on someone, to move somebody to action, to, to see that there's a sphere that we have been appointed by God to influence. It could be your school, could be your neighborhood, could be right there in your own home. And we have an opportunity to influence them for Christ. Now, a life that matters is one in which you, me, as transformed people, that we're sent out to influence our sphere of influence for Christ. And that sending could be just across the street. It could be over the mountain. It could be across the state line. Or it could be around the world. But God is going to send us somewhere in our lives to share others about his glory. So his glory may be known and that he may be praised. So how do you accomplish this mission? Well, you accomplish this mission through a, a life that matters. And let me show you a diagram. What we have is a life that matters built on three principles. Number one, meet with God. And then second of all, to connect with others. And third of all, to live with purpose. And when you have these three that come together, this brings together a life that matters. That matters. But now today, what we're going to do is we're going to unpack meet with God. And see, how does that fit in with a life that matters? Meet with God, connect with others, live with purpose. And what will happen is you will have a life that matters and a life that has importance both here and also into eternity. So here we go. Let's talk about meet with God. Meet with God is really just based on two things. Number one, meet with God corporately. Meet with God Corporately. This is what we're doing today. We're coming together in a worship service and we're meeting together corporately. One of the first corporate meetings with God took place in the book of Exodus. Now, in the book of Exodus, the children of Israel for over 400 years have been in captivity with the Egyptians. And then God raised up a man by the name of Moses to say, Moses, you're going to be the person that's going to take the people, get them out of slavery and bring them towards the promised land. This is what I promised Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all of those before you. And now it's getting ready to happen. So sure enough, Moses goes, you saw the movie, uh, the 10 commandments and all the plagues and sure enough, they let them come across and they began to go into the wilderness heading towards the promised land. And as they travel through the wilderness, God has provided them manna to eat and quail to eat and water from rocks and provided everything they've needed. And they've been gone about three months, and then they come to the mountain, Mount Sinai. And as they stand at Mount Sinai, God speaks to Moses, and this is what he tells them in verses 3 through 6. And it says, While Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and I brought you to myself. He says, you've seen what I've done. You've seen the mighty work of all all the plagues, how I've brought you out here. Then he says, now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Now, don't miss this. He just told Moses, let me tell you about this nation. He says, you will be a special treasure to me. Really? Yeah. You're going to be a kingdom of priests. That word priest is a word that means a bridge builder. You will be a people that will build a bridge to others to get to God. You will be the ones that will display the glory of God. You will be the ones that will tell others about the glory of God and that they will be praised and that they will praise God. He says, that's who you are, that you are my people to do this. In essence, he told them, I'm sending you out as transformed people to influence your world for Christ. Because everywhere that you go, throughout all the, the countryside that you go, you will be taking the word of God and you'll be telling them who God is. And so all of a sudden, he's asking them to kind of live out the mission statement that we've got. And he says, Moses, this is what these people are going to do. This is what all the, the nation of Israel, they will be the kingdom of priests and they, they will tell all the people who I am and they will be a holy nation committed to me. And see, we're called to do the exact same thing. Look what it says in 1 Peter 2.9. In 1 Peter 2.9, he says the same thing about us as believers. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Exactly what he said here. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. What are we proclaiming? His excellencies, his glory. This is what we are to do. And so exactly what we're reading about in Exodus 19 is exactly what we're called to do as believers today. We are this royal priesthood. We're a holy nation. It means we're to be obedient to him in everything. People for his own possession, telling others about who God is and displaying his glory. Wow. And so after he told them all this, he then said, I'm going to meet with them. I'm going to let the people meet with me. This has never happened before in all of history. No nation has been able to sit down and meet the God of heaven and to him to be able to talk to them and to be able to listen to his voice. And so we are doing the exact same thing. We're meeting corporately. And so they call the people to meet. So Moses tells them, first of all, you got to consecrate yourself. And so they laid out some things for about two days. And then on the third day, we're going to come and we're going to meet the Lord. Now it's interesting because when they said you're going to meet the Lord, you began to see that in this very first meeting, there were some things that were going to take place in this corporate meeting that we need to make note of. The first thing when you get to this meeting is you'll see the holiness of God. The first thing you're going to see is the holiness of God. And this is because he gave him some instructions. He tells him this in verse 12. And you shall set limits for the people all around saying, take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. So when your kid goes nanny, nanny, poo-poo, he's dead. Okay? He says, don't touch the mountain. Don't, Don't even touch the mountain get there along the edge, but don't touch the mountain. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. And when the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So what's getting ready to happen is God is beginning to set this standard to say there's a holiness and that you cannot come into his presence completely. When you come to the mountain, you can't just saunter all up on the mountain to come into God's presence. There is a holiness of God and a sinfulness of man, and I need you to come just to the edge and then stay there, okay? So we have this first meeting. What we're going to do is we're going to understand the holiness of God. That's going to come right at us. Second of all, you're going to see the power of God. Now, the power of God is this. On the morning of the third day, now, this is the day they are supposed to come for worship. There were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. The power of God. Now, already in Exodus 19, we know that this is not a Southern Baptist gathering. We know it's not Southern Baptist Because see, as a Southern Baptist, we know that if there's thunder and lightning, that means God's saying, stay in bed, don't come to church. But the very first corporate meeting, guess what happened? God sent thunder and lightning. He said, get out of your tent, head on over here. No excuses, okay? So next time it's thunder and lightning outside, don't roll over may the fear of God be on you. As you say, it's God telling me I got to come to church. Something great's getting ready to happen. People laugh at me and they say, why would you always come to church every Sunday, no matter what the weather was like? I said, well, I always grew up that way. But a defining moment for me was uh, when I was sitting at the, uh, the Iron Bowl. I believe I guess it was 1983 when I'm sitting in the Iron Bowl and I'm up in the upper deck. And you remember the tornado was coming and the storm was coming and the tornado. And back then, you know, now if it starts raining, they clear the stadium for an hour. You know, back then, nobody cared. And so, you know, this tornado was coming towards the stadium. And in the fourth quarter, they asked the band and cheerleaders to uh, disconnect their equipment for fear that a lightning storm may, may shock them and for the tuba players to get out of, under the uh, under the stands. The rain is coming so hard. We've got our umbrellas just like this. And my dad and my mom, were all sitting there. And my mom is saying, do you think we should go? And I looked at my dad and I says, we're winning. I will die here in the iron bowl with a a tornado. I'm not leaving. He said, I'm not either. If I can sit through a football game with a tornado, I can surely get out when it's thunder and lightning, okay? If a little bit of rain is not going to stop me from coming to worship. So the thunder and the lightning and the smoke on the mountain, and it's not just on the mountain. It says it wrapped around the mountain. And then God shows up and there's this fire going on. It's a pretty scary scene. And it says that the people trembled. So quickly, not only did they see the holiness of God, but they saw the power of God. Well, not only that, but they also saw the fear of God because it says all the people trembled. And so between the holiness of God, the power of God, the fear of God, all the people are trembling. And then in verse, 19, verse 17, it says, then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. They took their stand at the foot of the mountain. The holiness, the fear of God, the power of God. But then guess what they got to see? They saw the heart of God. Because in verse 20, excuse me, chapter 20, verses one and two, it says, and God spoke all these words saying, this is the first words that God said to the people. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. The first things he said to them was, I'm a merciful and gracious God. I'm the one that brought you out of slavery. You didn't deserve it. I've given you this. I have brought you out of slavery. And he says, out of this house, I'm the one that's done that. They saw the heart of God. But then he gives them the Ten Commandments. And that's the expectations of God. And God says, because of what I've done for you, these are expectations. Expectations. For you to be this holy nation that you've agreed to be, this royal priesthood, these are expectations that I have for you. Now, if I may just mention to you that every time we come into corporate worship, these five things should be here. Every time we come together in corporate worship, these five truths should be here. There should be a holiness of God. That is that we walk into this place understanding that we are sinners and God is holy. And that in spite of our sinfulness, he invites us to come into his presence and to worship him. And so when we come into this corporate worship, we sense this presence of a holy God. He's pure. He's righteous. And when I come in, it's not a guilt trip, but it's a realization that I'm a sinner in need of a savior. It's a recognition of the holiness of God and that he deserves to be worshiped. And so we come through, or we don't come in just casual uh, acquaintance with God. It is we recognize the holiness of God. So every time we come together corporate worship, there's always at the forefront the holiness of God. Second of all is the power of God. And that is that we sense that his Holy Spirit moves and we see lives changed. I mean, isn't it amazing when you really think about it? And people say, well, I just come to a church service. When you come to a worship service and we sing about God, we pray to a holy God. We preach words from God's book, the Bible. And as this happens, God's Holy Spirit moves within this place and touches lives and changes lives for eternity. That's amazing. And so that's where the power of God is. But I think there should also be the fear of God. Now, when we talk about the fear of God, it's not the the trembling like they had. It's more of an awe and respect of God that we should have. In a sense, there should be some trembling because we realize that if we live a life without him, we're going to spend eternity without him. And so, but there's this awe and this respect that I should have with God knowing that his holiness is here, but at the same time, he sent us a mediator, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for our sins, and that this holy, pure God, when he looks at me because I've made a decision for Christ, he sees the righteousness of Christ in me because I've been reconciled back to the Father. And so there's this awe and this respect that, that, we, need, that we need to have. And, and even in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19, it says that we're to come into his presence with confidence, with thanksgiving and with joy, and we come into confidence because of what Christ has done. That confidence does not mean that we come casually without reverence. We enter his presence, holy, penitent, but joyful, thankful, and confident because of that reconciliation. So when we come together, corporate worship, there's holiness of God, the power of God, there's a fear of God, and then there's the heart of God. That's the heart of God. We've got the entire Bible. Where you read through this and we see in this, already in Exodus, I see mercy and grace. And throughout it, we see his love, his forgiveness, and an invitation for us to become a part of his family. How cool is that? And to know that the heart of God, this holy God, loves us so much, he sent his son to die for us, and he invites you and me and all of our messed up lives, all the crazy things that we've done, all the times that we disappoint him and we disappoint others. And he says, he wraps his arms around us and says, I want you to be a part of my family. And not only I want you to be a part of my family, but you're going to be a joint heir. That means you get everything that the son gets. You're one of my children. whoa. And so this is what is off. This is the heart of God as he comes out and he says, I love you so much, I've sent my son to die for you. And I love you so much, I want you to live daily with my word in your heart. We see the heart of God. Every time we come into corporate worship, we need to just see that in the songs that we sing and in the messages that we hear. And then last of all, the expectations of God. Every time we walk away from a service, we should see that there are things that God expects us to do. And and he expects us to do because we're a child. We're part of his family. It's amazing. When you go to work for a company, they have expectations of what you're supposed to do. When you grow up in a family, you have expectations. Parents will give you tasks to do or chores or whatever, some expectations because you're family. When you come into God's family, there's expectations to live for him, to obey him. And so we learn this every Sunday and we get energized because we see the holiness of God, the power of God and the fear of God. And we all sense the heart of God. Then the same time we are spurred on to do good deeds because we see the expectations of God. The bottom line, the church is a place where we meet with God. For some, it's the first place that you met him. You came into a worship service and it's the first time that you met him. For others, you met him outside the church But then that relationship led you to church and led you to meet with him weekly. A life that matters knows that consistently meeting corporately with God is a priority. There's an importance to Sunday morning. It's important to invite others who do not know God, who do not believe in God, to come and to join you in corporate worship. Why? Because this is where they can meet God. And sometimes we're so hesitant to invite someone. Invite them. This is where they can meet God, and there's nothing greater that can happen in their life. Tonight is man church. Tonight is a night to invite a man to come and be with you and be a part of corporate worship. They will meet God tonight. Corporate worship. You meet God in singing. You pray to him. You fellowship with others. You study the Bible together. You hear the word preached. And all of these are a part of meeting with God in a corporate setting, and it can be life changing. Years ago, uh, early on when I was a pastor here, uh, a young lady by the name of Kim came by my office and, um, uh, she, um, she had a kind of an amazing story that was a very sad story for her. And, uh, she was pregnant. She was a new believer. Um, the father w- didn't want really anything to do with her on there. And, uh, I counseled with her. She also got connected with a wonderful and sweet family in our church that ministered to her, and, and, um, and you never know what happens on those things, and, and then years later, she got back with me and gave me an update, and uh, it was just amazing what it, how it, things had, had worked out, and just recently... We're, we're putting together some stories, some shade stories. And I remembered her name. And so I sent some inform. I sent her name in and said, Hey, I don't know whatever happened to her after that last update. We made some contact with her and she sent back an update on her life. And she was thrilled as to, uh, that she could tell her story. And just real briefly is she said, you know, um, here I was, I was, I was pregnant. I didn't know what to do in my life. And, uh, The individual, the father, ended up circling back around. In two and a half years of their daughter's life, they got married. And she said, he's the most wonderful husband I could ever ask for. We're involved in missions locally, and we're also involved in missions globally. And she said, all I can do is just praise God. And she sent an email, and in the email, this is what she said. She says, I sit here reading this, reading the contact form that we'd sent to her, I sit here reading this on Good Friday. And I recall my first Easter service as a new Christian. Broken, pregnant, rejected, alone. And I heard that phrase. It's Friday, but Sunday's coming. And something clicked. And I held on to that. Where did that happen? In a corporate worship service. Just sitting right here. And when that sermon was preached... I didn't know, no one knew about a young woman sitting out here, new believer, pregnant, alone, broken, not knowing where she's to take the next step. And God was just all over that. You see, to live a life that matters, we need to meet with God. And one of those ways is corporately. And just real briefly, we also need to meet with God individually. And this is the passage that um, that Michael was talking to you about in Psalm 42, 1 through 2. And this is what Psalm 42, 1 through 2 says. He says, as a deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God and for the living God. Where can I go and meet with God? Where can I go and meet with God? Just in the phrasing of this, when it says, where can I go and meet with God? During that day, when they said, go meet with God, it would usually intimate that they were wanting to go to the temple to worship. So the writer of this Psalm says, if you put it in today's language, I really need to go to church. I've got to get to church. But see, he was a far distance. He was up in Northern Israel. He was far from Jerusalem. And so he couldn't go. And so while he's there saying, I just really need to come and have that corporate worship. As he is saying that, all of a sudden a realization comes to him where he says, you know what? I don't have to go to church to worship. I can worship individually right now. And in fact, in that passage in Psalm, uh, in Psalm 42, as he is talking about how difficult his day is and in, in his life and that he his soul is just famished and he's thirsting like a deer's panting for water. And he says, everything is just all around me and I'm about as down as I can be and I just need some help. I need God to, to come and speak to me. He then comes and he says in verse five, and he says, hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. All of a sudden, he's picked back up. And then verse 11, he says, hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. What has just happened is now, all of a sudden, he's praising God. And it's like this realization where every day, individually, I meet with God. Now, corporate worship is great, but that's a a once-a-week thing. But individually, every day, I get to meet with God. And he says, and my soul, I am panting. I'm like the deer that pants for water. God, my soul pants for you. This is what God desires is for us to be able to desire him as much as a thirsty deer would water or a thirsty person would water. That's his desire. And that is to meet with God means individually we get the opportunity to meet him. Every day, our souls should cry out to God. And every day, we should meet with God through reading the Bible and through praying. Consistently meeting with God will result in you building on this foundation of Christ with precious metals and gold and silver. It means you'll build an edifice that when you come to eternity and the match is lit, it will continue to stand. It's not going to be wood, hay, and stubble. You get to make the choice. You choose as to how you want to build on that foundation. Gold, silver, precious jewels, or wood, hay, and stubble. A life that matters aligns its heart and actions with the goal of making God's glory be known and praised. And it's essential to achieve a life that matters. We must meet with God as often as possible corporately and meet with God every day individually. Meet with God. Now, we've got a great opportunity today That we get to meet with God corporately around the table of the Lord's Supper. And as we meet with him around the table, we celebrate Jesus Christ. We celebrate his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and the promise of his return. All of this we get to celebrate corporately as a family. And so in just a moment, we're going to distribute elements to take the Lord's Supper. Now let me just talk to all of you that are here, and especially those that are guests with us, is that is that this is something, as, as we go through, uh, it, it's a remembrance of what Christ has done in our hearts, and, and it's, a, uh, it's something that we're thankful for. If, um, if you're not a member of our church, but you've made a decision for Christ and you're part of his family, we welcome you to be a part of this. But there may be some of you that say, hey, I'm one of those folks that I'm here in the church, I'm here today, I, I really don't, don't know this person of Christ, I've never made a decision for Christ, then we're just glad that you're here. I uh, appreciate you being a part of this and hoping this is speaking to your heart and your spirit. But in just a moment, when we hand out these elements, you just go on and pass it down. No need to pick up one. And so, But then to listen to the things that are shared and to the music and the song that is sung, and uh, hopefully it'll speak to your heart, and you'll see the importance of what it meant for why Jesus died on the cross and then was raised from the dead. And so I'm going to ask our ushers at this time if they will come and, and prepare for the elements. And, uh, as they prepare for the elements, just a reminder that as they pass the elements, be sure and, and, and pick out the cup, but then just hold on to it. And, uh, after you hold on to it, uh, I will give instructions and we will take each one of those elements. So we'll give them just a moment as, uh, as our ushers, uh, get in, in position. And, uh, as they do this, the scripture says, That as we partake of this, that we are always to be remembering. We're to remember what Christ has done, but at the same time, we're supposed to take some reflection in our own life. And so think about what we've talked about today. Meeting with God, corporately, individually. Maybe you could evaluate where you are with that. Meeting with God corporately, one thing is not just checking the box, but it says that when I come in, my spirit's prepared and I'm ready to meet him. Not just plop down in my normal pew and just see if I can get through it. It is, am I prepared spiritually? Maybe you've got to be honest with yourself and saying, you know, God, I come on Sunday mornings, but I don't really meet with you. And I'm missing out on that. I want to make some changes. And for some, when you think about meeting individually, it may be, you know, it's really been a long time when I've just opened up my Bible on my own and read it. It's really been a long time where I've done more than two minutes of prayer to just talk to you. Maybe today is when God says, you know what? I want you to live a life that matters. He says, I want you to meet with me. And it could be as we take these moments of reflection that you could say, Lord, I'm holding this cup. I'm remembering of your sacrifice. I want to make some changes, corporately and individually. Let me lead us in a word of prayer. Father. I pray that as um, we pass the elements, that your Holy Spirit will speak to the hearts of each person here and help us to be able to take the expectations that you have and to make the needed adjustments in our own lives. But as we take this, we also remember what your son did for us and how he willingly gave his life so that we could become your children. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And as they took the bread, he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this bread is, represents my body, which is broken for you. Take it and eat it. It says that as they continued on the meal, there were different times. And near the end of it, there was a, a time for the cup. And uh, he took the cup and he told them that this cup represented the blood of a new covenant, blood that would be shed for the forgiveness of sins. And so it was to always be remembered that as they went through this Lord's Supper and they came to that point to always remember about Jesus being on the cross and his blood being shed, and that shed blood being for the forgiveness of our sins. And it's this new covenant between man and God. And so as He gave them that, He said, take part.